of what we've been going through, but I want to give you a bit of a, a review of this because there's great purpose behind it all, which we've not truly gotten to yet, but shall. <clears throat> but overall, uh, I made a statement that God has a purpose and a work that He's doing here on this earth, and that's one that we have understood for decades in God's church, that He is recreating Himself, that He created us in His image and made us human to put us through trials, tests, troubles, tribulations, and all the vagaries of life, and that through all this He can come to know and to trust us, as He said to Abraham, now I know. He does not want any rebellion in His kingdom from now throughout eternity. There was a great rebellion once when an angel got proud and vain and egocentric and thought that he had been appointed to rule the universe instead of God. Now, who appointed him to that? Well, he was self-appointed. Nobody appointed Satan to be the ruler of the universe. But he appointed himself... And then he set about getting a third of the angels to agree with that appointment. And then he tried to take over the throne of God the Father and he who became Jesus Christ the Son, or whom we now call Emmanuel, as instructed in Matthew. That was a great rebellion that caused all kinds of problems and difficulties throughout the universe. It created conflict and division, frustration, and difficulties of all kinds. That which had been a completely peaceful universe had become roiled and in great turmoil. It saddened God because He wants to share what He has. He has a perfect life. And he had shared it with the angels he had created and the 24 elders and those that are about his throne. And then a rebellion occurred. That shows that the angels do have some free moral agency in that they could make a bad choice. Now, God saw all that, and I'm sure he and his son thought about it for a long, long period of time after they'd put the rebellion down. But they wanted to share what they had with those who would never rebel against them and would live in peace forevermore. So they devised a plan to make man in their image. You read through all the scriptures that God has eyes and ears and a nose and his arm and his legs and so on. So he made us, not spirit, but physical, but in the same likeness as they are. <coughs> and he said, we want to ensure that there will never be another rebellion such as that which we have experienced. So he put us here with the potentiality of becoming an enemy of God. With a nature that when it was exposed would be shown to be contrary to God. And in fact, he even said that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked who can know it. We have people who try to tell us that human nature is good and that there's a lot of good in everybody. And we are capable of doing good things, and we are capable of doing bad things. Someone remarked the other day that people seem to be doing fairly good things until the power goes off, or there's a hurricane, or something that's disruptive, and then suddenly they think, I can get away with something. I can go loot and rob and do whatever I wish because the cops are too busy doing something else to pay attention. So their actual nature then comes out. 
that which is suppressed and hidden because of fear of society and, and trouble. Adam and Eve were created without any problems. They were created not knowing any kind of evil at all. But God had made their minds and designed them in such a way that it would only take one infraction for their whole human nature to be exposed. And when they disobeyed God once, suddenly they knew shame and jealousy and envy and hatred and animosity and trouble between them, each blaming each other and blaming God. And God had designed that on purpose. And ever since then, everyone who is born on this earth is evil by nature. Even our little children, who seem so sweet and can be very sweet in our arms, doesn't take very long until the spirit of rebellion comes out, and they want what they want, and they want it when they want it, and you'd better give it to them, or the whole world's going to get noisy in one way or another. Because that nature is there. They don't know yet how to express it except with a is all they can say. Now later on, they learn to speak whatever language their parents do, and they learn to express it more openly, or not more openly, I guess, but more intelligently. So that they can tell you what they want and want now. It's on the grocery store shelf. They can name it, and they want it, and they want it now, or they're going to climb out of the basket and upset the whole grocery store. You've seen it, I've seen it. Because it is their nature. And then we spend our time as parents working with them to get them to be agreeable, to get them to be obedient, to be cooperative, to be sweet, to be kind, to share, all those things that we teach our children because it is contrary to their nature. They don't want to share their toys with their cousins or their siblings. That's mine. You've heard the intonation like that. It's not, that's mine, would you please give it to me? Mine! Spiteful, mean, nasty, selfish. God made us that way. Did he goof? No. He had seen in Satan and a third of the angels that kind of attitude develop. And if he is to trust us with an eternity with him in peace and love, then he has to put us through the attitude and mind that Satan and that those demons came to have and have us conquer it and him to know that we, having been through this, would never want to go back to it. How many people have you ever known who said, boy, I'd love to go back and just do this all over again? Not very many. Well, now, when you're 80 and you'd like to be 20, you might entertain that thought. But as far as the trials and troubles and privation and arguments and broken homes and broken marriages and death and all the things that we've experienced, we don't want to go back and do that over. No. We want to go on to something better in the future than what we've experienced here. And just the very fact that God has put us through this as humans, boot camp if you will, was so that we might never want to go back there. I've never heard a veteran of any of the military services ever say, I sure wish I could go back to boot camp. You ever heard one say that? <laughs> I've heard some terrible stories about how it was, 
and how they wouldn't ever want to go back to that. That's exactly what God is trying to do with you and me. He put us here to go through human boot camp. Trials, troubles, through much tribulation, enter the kingdom of God. Through much tribulation, or through, uh, oh, i got two scriptures mixed up here. Uh, doesn't matter. We will all go through trials and troubles and tribulations. That's just part of the deal. Now, people don't understand that because they look around and say, if God is good, how could everything be so bad? <laughs> and things are getting worse and worse. We're not very far from World War III. We're not very far, I don't think, from Civil War II in this country. And I can show you in the Scriptures where it's going to happen. So, existence on this light, on this earth, has been pretty tenuous throughout history. We've had more peace and more opportunity for long life here toward the end than many, many generations have had. You know, there are a lot of generations that existed on this earth whose life expectancy was only 30, 40 years of age because of war, because of plagues and disease and all kinds of things that people have gone through. So, let's just understand that God has caused us to have to go through all of this so that if He ever confers, or when He confers, eternal life and immortality upon us, that we'll never want to go back to this. You have to go through some pretty bad things sometimes to never want to go back there. So what he, is in, what he has got here is an insurance policy. You know, he could have created us and given us eternal life and immortality in the first place. And we wouldn't have had to go through all of this for the last 6,000 years, right? He created the angels, gave them eternal life. But he gave them some free moral agency, and there's where vanity entered at one point and trouble started. So he didn't do that with us. He created us physical, and we're going to be physical until dust goes back to dust or we're changed when Christ returns, one of the two. So he underwrote us with an insurance policy that we would not ever go back to where Satan went. Once we're in the kingdom of God, he says we will not remember the past, won't care about. It's not that perhaps you couldn't remember it if you set your mind to it, but who cares? After we've been through this, who would want to go back and relive the past? <laughs> you don't want to go back and do it now. Why would you then? Because everything then is no more tears, no more death, no more sorrow, no more pain. Everything peaceful and wonderful forevermore. So why think back? There's no point. You think forward. God is a forward-thinking God. And that's one of the reasons He tells us when we are repentant of our sins that they are forgiven. And we don't need to go back there and rehearse them. We need to remember lessons learned, yes. But we don't have to worry about the past because Christ's sacrifice is bigger than your past and mine, and everybody else's combined. So you don't have anything in the past to worry about. The only thing you've got to worry about is today and tomorrow, <laughs> the future, because the past is wiped out. But we have trouble believing that. So sometimes we get depressed or feel sorry for ourselves about mistakes we may have made. There's no room for that. You don't need to do that. We might see that here in Peter if I... My eye catches it at the right moment. But what I've been going through, this was kind of on top of that, but I've been going through the different callings that God has done in the past of different people. He made us all to be a part of His kingdom someday. And He has worked out a purpose here. And he allotted 
7,000 years to do it, to complete the plan. We don't have to worry about whether time is going to go on another two, three, four, five hundred, or a thousand years as we today know it. Because when he did the creation, he did it in seven days and then he rested. And he told us in Numbers 14.34 that a day is as a thousand years. So a day of the week is typical of a thousand years. Uh, Paul goes into that in Hebrews 4. I, I'll not go back and go through it all, but it says here in verse 4, He spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. Now, Paul is not bringing that up here in Hebrews just to rehearse creation. He's trying to show those who are understanding truth, that that seventh day of, of the creation was a very important day. It says, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Well, now, he rested nearly 6,000 years ago from the creation itself. But here he's talking about people who will enter into his rest. That must be something in the future then, that these people and we will enter into because the, the rest of creation day is done. It was finished. So this is something for the future. He says, Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Now, he has a rest prepared, but Adam and Eve didn't go in. They didn't really believe God. Neither did the early New Testament, I mean Old Testament Israelites. They didn't really believe God. So they never entered into that rest. Again, he limits a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now, he, again, he shows it's something future in verse 8. For if Jesus had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day, one yet to come. There remains, therefore, a rest to the people of God. Hasn't come yet. It's still there. Now, which day is he talking about being a rest? Well, the seventh day, because that's the day God rested. So it will be the seventh day, or seventh thousand year period, that is the time of rest. Now the world understands that to some degree, and we have a beast power farming right now that is going to claim that they have created the millennium, that they're going to be a thousand years of peace. Uh, no, this is the rest of the people of God, not to the world. He that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. See, we keep the seventh day Sabbath, because that's the day God rested, and it pictures the rest that is to come 6,000 years later and lasts for a 1,000 years of peace with Christ ruling on the earth and us ruling with him for a thousand years. So it's very clear he made a 6,000 year time for man to do all his labor and all his work, and Satan to do his work as the prince of the power of the air and the ruler of this present world. Then Christ will return and give the earth a thousand year period of rest. And that's what the Sabbath pictures. That's why we keep it every seven days, so that we might keep burning bright in our minds that Christ is coming back to give the world a thousand years of peace. And if we've been called to understand that, His plan, His purpose, and the 7,000 year parameters that are involved, it needs to be firmly in our mind and in our heart and that is why we so carefully approach the Sabbath 
and make it a day of rest and not a time to think our own thoughts, to do our own things, but to remember and recall and to talk to God about our candidacy to be a king and a priest with him when that time of rest comes, not just for us, but for the whole world then, everyone that is left. So we have this 7,000-year plan. And I'm here to tell you that we're almost at the end of 6,000 years of it. Almost at the end. And Christ is coming very soon now, only a few years from now. And we can count on the Word of God. If He said, it's a 7,000-year plan, it's a 7,000-year plan. If He said, after 6,000 years, the millennium would start, then it's going to be after 6,000 years. It's not going to be 5,933. It's not going to be 6,047. It's going to be what He said. A day is as a year in some calculations, but he's also said a day is also equal to a thousand years. Peter repeats that, and I think we'll probably read it here in a moment. But what I want to sort out of this plan then is that God has called certain people at certain times to do certain works. We've been going over that now for several weeks showing that Enoch actually did a work of God. And Jude mentions one of the things that Enoch taught, that Christ would return with tens of thousands of his saints. Well, that statement is made, I think it's Jude 14, right toward the end of his book, just before the book of Revelation, which goes into all these end-time events, culminating in the return of Christ with his saints. Uh, to begin the millennium in the Jubilee year. So Enoch preached those things. You can go to the book of Enoch itself, which is separate from the Bible, but mentioned by the Bible, and to read other things that Enoch did. But the first really major work that could be called that, uh, that everybody has to recognize, was that of Noah. And... We went through that in some detail because I wanted to show you a very important point there, not just of what he did and his perseverance and his character, but that that year was 100 years, I mean that work was 100 years uh, in completion. 100 years. That is a very, very important point when we get down to talking about the work of God at the end. And we'll see that in detail a little later on. Now, I went through many scriptures to show how God called Abraham, how he called Joseph, how he called Paul, how he called Peter and the disciples. And went through quite a few showing that we also have been called. Paul talked about those who had been called into the various congregations that he visited, how they'd been called into the gospel, been called into the purpose and the plan of God to be what? <clears throat> to be first fruits. Now, we have seen, and I'm sure will again, that the first fruits only amount to 144,000. I don't know how many people were on earth in Noah's day, but out of it, only eight were kept alive. Very, very, very small fraction were kept alive to continue on with the history of man. Now, at the end, we've got, what, seven and a half billion, more or less, they estimate here on the earth at this time. And out of that, only 144,000 will be in the first resurrection. That's a very, very small fraction. So there's another way that the work of Noah and the end-time work are very similar. So these callings occurred. And Herbert Armstrong did believe that he was called by God, not just for personal salvation, but he was called to do a work. Uh, he answered that call 
as he began to study in 1926 and 27 and learn a lot of truth out of the Holy Scriptures. And he began to preach a, a gospel that had not been heard in his words for 1,900 years. Now, that's a round figure because Christ announced the Jubilee and began his ministry in 27 A.D., and 1,900 years later was 27, 1927 A.D. But the gospel was preached after 27 A.D. for approximately 70 years, and it pretty much died out by the time uh, the Apostle John died, probably a little after 100 A.D. So that work lasted about 70 years. So Herbert Armstrong did not start the count from the death of the Apostle John, let's say, but from the time Christ announced and began his ministry. So it was a ministry that, yes, began in 1926-27 and ended about 70 years later. Well, ironically, 1,900 years from the time Christ made that announcement in Luke 4, Herbert Armstrong was called in 1926-1927. Exactly 1,900 years later. Now, we have seen that Christ was announcing in Luke 4 the acceptable year of the Lord was the Jubilee. That's the only year that's acceptable. The 1 through 49 are not acceptable. Is year 38 acceptable to you? No. See, it's set up on 50s. And after 6,000 years... 3,000 jubilees since creation. On a jubilee year, the millennium will begin. That's the only acceptable time to me. Last year wasn't acceptable to me. This year ain't acceptable. And next year's not acceptable. I loathe the times that we are in. I hate what's going on in this world. God said that He will bless those that sigh in Isaiah, that sigh and cry over the things that are going on in the world. Killing millions and millions of babies? Is that an acceptable year? Killing people in warfare? The United States bombing whoever wants to get rid of the U.S. dollar? Is that an acceptable year? That's never acceptable. When he said he was to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal, he meant the one that pictures when the millennium will start after 6,000 years. Because that's the only acceptable time. There's nothing acceptable from Adam and Eve and their rebellion, probably on a Sunday right after the creation, would be my guess. There's nothing acceptable from Adam and Eve until today that I would pick out and say, this is the way I want it forevermore. There's never been a year like that. And there won't be until that 50th year is proclaimed and the millennium begins and war, fighting, and ill health and disease will go away. They won't exist anymore. Because Christ will rule with a rod of iron. With love, with kindness, with joy, with peace, but a rod of iron. You break the law, you don't get away with it. You don't sit on death row for 30 years while they fiddle around and decide whether to execute you or not. No leniency. You see, you won't need a court really like we have today, will you? to try to get all these lawyers and all these witnesses to try and figure out who done it. And if you done it. Because we'll know who done it. In fact, we'll stop them before they ever even do it. Doesn't it say in Isaiah 30, 21? I think it is. Somebody will be behind you and say, Hey, don't do that. Oh. <laughs> I'm watched. If I do that, I'm in trouble. So somebody will just tell you, uh-uh, I know what you're thinking. Pull your hand back. Don't do that. Oh, okay. It's going to be a time of peace. Enforced. You'll still have free moral agency. You can still rebel against God if you want to, but 
You're not going to want to. What did he say in Zechariah 14? When this is all set up, and somebody says, I'm not going to the feast. I don't believe in the feast of tabernacles. I'm not going to Jerusalem. Yeah, that's okay. You can make that decision. It's your option. But you won't get any rain. Rain will just simply stop. And you're going to starve to death if you don't go up to keep the feast. It's just that simple. The Feast of Tabernacles pictures that time. That 7,000 years. And that is the acceptable day, the acceptable year, the acceptable condition of God for human beings. What we have done so far is acceptable only to Satan. And, I guess, to some degree ourselves. If we get what we want when we want it. So that's all going to go away. So he called Herbert Armstrong to do a work just as he had called others to do a work. Now it frustrates people often when God works through someone to do something he wants done. Uh, it frustrated people in Noah's day. It frustrated people in Moses' day where they would say, Who's is Moses? We're just as good as Moses is. Our decisions are just as good. We can run Israel just as good as Moses can. And so they rebelled. And they took a lot of the princes of Israel with them in that rebellion. And God dealt with it summarily. Just opened up the ground and they went away. Simple. Stop that rebellion right now. Even his brother and sister, Miriam and Aaron, decided, you know, we're his brother and sister. Same parents. We're just as smart as he is. Matter of fact, we might be a little smarter than he is. He married that Ethiopian woman. And God said, don't do that. But you know whose problem that was? That was God's problem and Moses' problem. Miriam and Aaron had not made the rule about who you should marry or not marry. Had they? No. God made those rules. So who in the world did they think they were to take God's place and enforce His rules when He's the one that made them and He's the one that had called Moses to do a job? So Moses was God's problem. He wasn't Miriam and Aaron's problem. Relax. God can take care of Moses. He got no problem with that. You know what? I can show you a scripture and probably will where he says that the end time type of Moses will be blind and deaf. I did that backward. Blind and deaf. But he was a righteous man, but he would wake up at some time and smell the roses and see and hear what God wants done. But there'd be a period of time when he would not. As I phrased it once in the Minor Prophets series, he's out to lunch for a while. And he heard it. But is that my problem? No, I can't remove the blinders. I can't make the ear hear. I cannot make anybody see anything that they don't want to see. Can't do it. It's up to God. So if Moses back then had a problem, Moses today, didn't he tell us in Malachi 4 he would send Moses and Elijah right here at the end? He's not going to resurrect those boys and bring them here. They're end time types to do a similar job. And God is still there, just as He was in those days. Now, the apostles were given authority to go do a job. And <coughs> there was a drought, and people were having trouble having enough food to eat. So the apostles said, 
you know, if we're going to get this job done that Christ gave us to do, we need to be alive. If we all starve to death, it won't. we can't do the work. So it appears that the best thing we could do at this moment would be to pool our resources so that everybody has some food and everybody can work, and some don't have a lot and some have none. So they made a policy there that everybody would just simply turn their properties, everything they had, into money and give it to the apostles to be distributed so that everybody had something. A small, minor, for a short while, dip into communism, if you will, where everything was had in common. Now, that doesn't mean communism or communist doctrine we know it today is good. It isn't. It's bad. And it doesn't work. So I'm not a Democrat suddenly. But there for a short while, having everything in common was for the common good. But Ananias and Sapphira thought, you know, they do have some authority, but isn't this pushing it just a little bit? We'll sell our property and we'll give them some, but, you know, we got to hedge our bet. We better keep some back for ourselves. How'd that work out for them? As soon as it was brought out, they both fell dead, got dragged out one at a time. Well, God had put power and authority among his apostles. And that scene right there is proof that God backed them up. And he was there to do the job. They were there to do a job, and he was going to back them up, and it was going to get done. And if you decided you weren't on the bandwagon, you could be in trouble. Did we hear that? If you're not on the bandwagon, you could be in trouble. If you see what God is doing, and you have your own ideas or your own thoughts, you had better be very careful. Because God appoints who He will. And the gift and calling of God is without repentance, which we read. Now, I touched on that earlier. Satan was self-appointed as the Savior of the universe. How did it work out for him? In defeat. He's still the ruler of this earth. Now, Christ defeated him after 40 days of fasting, and Satan tempted him. But Christ defeated him. He just has not yet come back to take charge and he told Satan at the very beginning of this whole thing, I'm going to give you 6,000 years down there to rule the earth, along with man. And when that's done, you're done, buddy. He didn't call him buddy, I doubt, but you're done. And then Christ is going to take over and rule that 7,000 years of rest. The appointed time, the acceptable year. So, God called us, did He not, through Herbert Armstrong, or through a ministry, or through someone who had already been called through Herbert Armstrong. We did not find this on our own. Nobody did. No man can come except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So if you were called... In this end time, you were called for a purpose, and that is to be part of the 144,000, the Bride of Christ. You were also called to help do a work in the days of Herbert Armstrong or shortly thereafter. That is inescapable. We all have our experiences we could tell and experiences about others we could tell. Now, some few of you have really been born now since Herbert Armstrong died. But here you are as children of members or grandchildren of members. Not many of them were called. But a few have been as a result of their parents' faithfulness and teaching them the truth. 
So, you can be part of it. Now we face a dilemma. Herbert Armstrong's work ended the same way the apostles, early apostles' work ended. Christ commissioned them to go out and preach and teach His truth. He didn't set out to save the world at that time, did He? He wasn't here Himself to save the world. He certainly, if He was, He did a pretty poor job of it. There were very, very few people who really listened to what He said. They'd come along and listen, and they liked some of what He said, but they liked the healings, and they liked free lunch. If you only had five fishes, it was kind of nice. But they weren't really called. Now, he did call a few, namely 12. <laughs> that was about it, maybe 70 altogether, uh, but 12 to do a job. And that job was only to last for a certain period of time in this 7,000 years of his purpose. It lasted about 70 years, and it was over. Now, if we fast forward, Herbert Armstrong's ministry began after his 26, 20, 1926 and 7 year of, of training. He began to preach and teach a little here and there and began to try to spread the knowledge that he had received from God. And within about 70 years, it was over. 1926-27 to 1996-97, pretty well over, wasn't it? He died in 86 and the Babylonians moved in and set it up, set the church up on its pillar in Babylon, as Zechariah 6 clear, or 5 clearly shows. And it's been in Babylon since. And then we've been scattered and spewed out and uh, till there's hardly anything left. Okay, so we've all experienced that. About 70 years. Let's go to First Peter, because I'm... I'm building up to something, and we'll continue to do so till we get there. Uh, Peter was the one appointed to be the leader of the early New Testament church. Uh, Christ loved John on a personality level, perhaps more than anyone else. He just loved the way John was as a person. But Peter had more of the leadership characteristics that were needed to lead the church, so he appointed him to be that. Each one of them had different gifts, different abilities, and so on. They didn't all have the same gifts and abilities, obviously. And Paul even said that. But Peter wrote to the strangers throughout, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and talks about Christ. And then, verse 15, he says, But as he which has called you is holy, so be you holy in all manner of conduct. So he's writing to people who were scattered all over that had learned the truth and said that they had been called and that we're to be holy as God is holy. And to pass the time of our sojourning here in fear, we should be living in fear. Not fear of the lake of fire. He doesn't say much about that. We should live in fear of not fulfilling the purpose for which he has called us. And that kind of motivational fear should help us grow and overcome and obey God. That's the whole point. Is that we get up in the morning and we fear that what we do through that day and what we think through that day might not be holy. So we get on our knees and we pray and ask us to and ask God to give us His Spirit, His help, that we might control our thoughts and actions and be holy that day. Now it doesn't come natural, have you noticed? To be holy throughout that day. Just one day. I had somebody tell me one time, I have to repent before I even get out of bed. She didn't tell me everything she was thinking, but from the time she woke up till she actually got out of bed, there was some thought that went through her mind that she said, I have to repent before I even get up. 
pre-coffee, if you will. I think we all have those experiences. It's uh, We, by nature, are selfish. Me first. And our carnal nature and carnal appetites are there, and they have to be dealt with. We have to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And since we're flesh, and our desires and our responses are fleshly, then we got a battle to try to be holy in an unholy world. To be holy when you have an unholy mind. I hope we've progressed beyond Protestantism enough to know that we don't have a holy mind. If we're honest with ourselves, uh, there's a lot of unholy stuff goes through people's heads uh, that, that we have to accept. Now you've got to clean it up. That's what he's saying here. Verse 18, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your vain conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for you. Notice verse 21. Who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. He's saying an awful lot there in verse 21. If you have hope in the flesh, you're toast. Because our flesh cannot perform on a holy, godly level. Our nature pulls us the wrong way. So if we're just depending on, okay, I'll repent of my sin. I'll ask God to forgive me. And we are worried about sin, we could miss the boat. Our thought and mind should not be on sin. It should be on the precious blood of Christ who was without blemish and spot and He was made manifest to us that He can raise the dead and give us glory. So we're to be looking forward in faith and hope in glory, not worrying about the sins of yesterday. It's not negative, in other words. It's positive. We have to have a positive faith and hope that He can save us by His blood, not worry about the past because of our sin. See, if you're thinking of your sins of the past, you're still thinking of self, right? What I did. That's self. What I did. If you're thinking of Him and what He did to fix that then you're looking forward in faith and hope for a better tomorrow. So your focus is ahead, not behind. That's hard for us to grasp, because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we can have a guilty conscience, but He purges, He cleanses our conscience, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. Let's just move forward in faith and hope with the true belief and faith and trust that His sacrifice really did take care of our sins. That's what faith and believing in Christ is all about. You can have His name and say, I believe Jesus. That doesn't get you there. You've got to believe that His sacrifice was worth something. That it actually does remove our sin. And we can move forward in faith and hope. Making today holy. Not worrying about how unholy we were yesterday. Learning from it, but moving on from it. As I've said many times in the book of Lamentations, it says He gives us a clean slate every morning. And we need one, don't we? I cannot think of or remember or even think that there might have been a day that I didn't have some kind of an unholy thought or a selfish thought. Whatever it was, I've, I've never been through a day that was totally unselfish. 
Never been there yet. Still hoping it comes. <laughs> Working on it. Maybe there'll be less unholy thoughts. Maybe less unholy actions. But I'm not there yet. But I have to move on in faith and hope that He can help me walk in the Spirit by His Spirit of power. So that life is positive, not negative. It has to be positive. Seeing you have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren and see that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. That is our goal and our purpose here is to love each other as much as we love ourselves. And that's an awful lot of love. But to love each other fervently. What is a fervent prayer? It's one said with all your heart. Now, fervent love of the brethren means that there's no room for hate or jealousy or animosity or envy or judgment, but that we love them unconditionally, fervently. That is incumbent upon every one of us here toward everyone else of us here. I don't care what little scrambles you've been in with each other, or tiffs, or jealousies, or problems, or sins, or whatever it may have been that keeps you from loving each other fervently, you had better go to work on it and get it fixed. Somehow, some way. Through meekness, through humility, through self-effacement, through self-hurt um, and pain, Whatever it takes to come to love one another fervently. Isn't that what the Scripture tells us we ought to do? We just read it. You going to resist that? Yeah, but God don't know about him or her. <laughs> you know? <laughs> he don't know about them. What they did to me, what they said to me. Oh! I'm going to go tell God about it and I think I'll tell my neighbors too. No. We've all done it. We've all felt it. We've all lived it. Get over it. Find a way to get over it. We're not to be divided. We're here to be one body working in perfect harmony together. No exceptions. If you're here, God and God called you, then you're here and God called you. And so was everyone else. So who are you to say God called me, but he must not have called you? Who are we? We can't make that judgment. God ponders our hearts, he says. He ponders mine, he ponders yours. And he can read the heart. You and I cannot read the heart. We read actions, we read words, we read inflections and body language, and we make our opinions and judgments based on those things. And sometimes people mis misspeak. Sometimes they're tired and don't care. Sometimes they're in rebellion. Sometimes they got a headache. Sometimes they don't just like you for whatever reason they don't like you. Because everybody doesn't like everybody equally. Christ loved John more than he loved the other disciples. Sorry, he did. That's all there was to it. It said so right there in the Scripture. There was just something about John that Christ's personality fit with. And John, above all else, taught love. Through the Gospel of John and the last three books of John, Love is the primary focus of John. Outgoing concern for others. 
Now, is that why Christ identified with him? Because outgoing love toward others is what Christ is all about. So he had a more natural affinity for John than he did the other disciples because they had some love and they had some faith and they had some hope and they had some joy and some peace and they had the fruits of the Spirit. But love is the greatest thing and that's the thing that John had the biggest share of above the other things that he had and he had more of a a bigger share of that than did the others. So Christ had a natural affinity for him. You want Christ to love you and have an affinity for you? Would you like to have him love you maybe more than some of your neighbors? Well, you better love your neighbors more. Because that's what he responds to, is love. It's the greatest thing. So the more love you got, the more... Christ is going to love you. He says, I'm going to treat you exactly like you treat others. Didn't he say that? Didn't he say, if you forgive their sins, I'll forgive yours. But if you don't forgive their sins, I won't forgive yours. Now, there's a scary statement. And we who go to him in our self-righteous and say, oh, Lord, forgive me. And then we don't do the same thing for someone else. And then actually forgive them. Because it's one thing to mouth the words, say, God bless my enemies, please. And you don't really mean it, do you? You've got to come to that point where you actually love your enemies. Now, they do some awful things to you. And remember the Psalms where David had all kinds of people? There were a lot of people who wanted to kill him. All kinds of problems there. All kinds of envy, jealousy. He had a lot of it, and he brought some of it on himself, and some of it was just came with the territory, part of the job. But he had a lot of it. And you can see him struggle with it if you read all the way through the Psalms. He really struggled with it. And then he would, he would say, God, kill them all! In one Psalm, and the next Psalm he'd say, God, help my enemies. He changed his attitude. But it went back and forth, didn't it? Why did God put all that in there? So that we could see the struggle that David had to come to have a right attitude toward them. And he had a mighty struggle with it. All right, so do we. So let's struggle on and get her done. That's what we got to do. God called us. And he called us not to fail. He called us to win. And we need to get about the business of winning through his spirit, not worrying about our past or somebody else's past or our present or their present. Let's be working toward being holy from this moment forward. Every moment that goes by, three seconds ago is too late. That was an unholy thought. Put it out, move on, and try to have a holy one. (laughs) A godly one. Holy may sound a little too highfalutin for you, but a godly thought. What kind of thoughts does he have? Love, joy, peace, happiness, understanding, patience. That's the kind of thoughts he has. How are we doing so far? Are Are you really known for your patience? what I thought. Certainly so. Well, we all got work to do. You believe in him that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Well, I don't want to get too much into conduct here, but it's all part of it. We've been called to be kings and priests in the world tomorrow with Christ. And the kings and priests have to have training. Now, you don't have any clue, really, what the royalty of this world goes through to train them to be kings or queens on this earth. When those 
poor kids are born into the royal family of England or Germany or wherever it might be, they go through absolutely rigorous training in every protocol, in every situation, every social thing, they go through classes all day long to train them in how to be a king or a queen or a prince or a princess. I mean, they put them through it. And at some point, a lot of them rebel. And they do things they shouldn't be doing. But it's not for lack of training. It's not for lack of rigor. You know, God was letting the Israelites go through what? Making bricks, making bricks, making bricks. Tough making bricks all day long. Daylight till dark, making bricks, seven days a week. Tough work. Then along comes Moses and says, I'm going to haul you out of here and everything's going to be good and we're going to have peace. So then the Egyptians, the Mitzrayimites, say, all right, no more straw. I want the same amount of bricks. You go get your own straw. Got to be good bricks. We're not going to bring you straw anymore. You still got to make the same amount of bricks. You just got to work faster. Oh, joy, oh, joy. Here comes a Savior for us, and all we get to do is work. And work harder than we were. And get more whippings than we were getting. Thanks, Moses. You're our great leader. Nice to see you. Or something like that. Things usually got worse. And finally they got better. But then they got a little thirsty after a walk. And <laughs> Hey, Moses. God, which God? They'd forgotten God. They even asked, which God? Because there was the God of the Nile. There were alligators. There were frogs. There were flies. There were lice. There were all kinds of gods around. So which God is it that's doing this? Doesn't he know how to make water? We found out he knows how to make blood, but can he make water? And then Moses had a thought. And then he had an action. And he thought, ooh, that was an unholy thought. I shouldn't have struck the rock. I should have just spoken to it like God said. Now I'm in trouble. And he was. <laughs> he was. He should have been more patient with those people. One of the fruits of the Spirit of God. And he messed up. So then he had to work on patience. And those were tough conditions to work on patience in. Three and a half murmuring, complaining, griping Israelites. Don't have enough water, don't have enough food, wrong kind of food. What's this stuff? I want quail, I want meat. On and on and on it went. We have to walk clear where to go potty? Outside three and a half million in a camp? You better plan early or you wouldn't make it that far. No, there were some tough times. And he says, the more we try to serve him, the more upset Satan gets with us, right? He hates the light of the Spirit of God. So the more like God you are, the more Satan notices you. And he looks you over real carefully, and he sees the sins and the warts, and he goes to the Father on a daily basis and accuses you. Unfortunately, the Father and the Son have patience. It's the fruit of their spirit. And they tell Satan, Ah, Christ's blood covers that. So Satan comes back. He's going to get you on something else. See, sometimes Protestants attribute the attitudes of Satan to God. How many sermons have been preached in some Protestant church one somewhere? God's going to get you for that. God's going to get you. You're going to hell. That's not the way God thinks. That's the way Satan thinks. Satan's going to get you for that. 
And whatever it is you did, I'm going to take it to God and I'm going to make him get you for that. Because he said, if you do this, you're going to die. Didn't he? The penalty of sin is death. So Satan takes it. Ah, I got him now. I got him. Runs over to the throne of God. You ought to hear the one I got now. Yeah, okay, Satan, let's hear it. Oh, really? Well, that's one of those things that Christ's blood actually covered. Sorry. That's God's attitude. Now, Satan gets worried about it. Now, if you get worried about it, then you have the same attitude as Satan, don't you? If you worry about somebody else's sins or problems, then you have the same attitude as Satan. He's the accuser of the brethren. We can't be that. We've got to love one another, what did he say, fervently? Not hate each other with a passion, love each other fervently. That's what we're here called to do. And if we can learn to do that, then we can be a part of the solution to this world's problems. Kings and priests with Christ a thousand years as the bride, the wife of Christ, helping him do his job of ruling the earth. That's what we've been called to do. Now, that's our big overall calling. Is it already time to eat? I guess it is. Well, I got off on that, and that's okay because it's important. But we'll uh, we'll get back on track. Well, it wasn't off track, but uh, it all has to do with where we're headed. So uh, let's stop and have potluck. <laughs>